presents Archimedes Podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, the evidence-based section where clinicians find a clinical problem, go out and search for the best evidence to answer that problem, appraise the evidence and weigh it in the balance, come up with the good bits and the bad bits, and then conclude it in a way that can be put into clinical practice. We also have a little snippet, a critical appraisal note every month that explains a little bit about evidence-based medicine or the practice of critical appraisal. And this month, it's called Blame It On Me. Well, I think most of us have been there. We think it's our fault. But how do we know in most circumstances if the drug or potion or puffer or whatever that we have prescribed is the cause of something averse? The basic tenets of critical appraisal for such a study are about assembling an appropriate group and making fair assessments of outcomes, just like you would with any other type of study. Ideally, you would like to see that the exposed and unexposed groups were broadly comparable, that the outcomes and confounding variables were measured the same way in both groups. Remember, a confounding variable is one that's actually linked to the outcome and also linked to the exposure in some way. And it sort of gives the impression that the exposure has caused the outcome, but it's not. It's just linked through the other thing, the confounding variable. And the third thing you'd like to see is that the follow-up was long enough to have seen the outcome actually happen. These then try to see if there is something else in the patient group that is the cause of poor outcomes that isn't just that one group got an extra hard looking at to see the poor outcome and that we waited long enough to see if the bad thing actually did happen or not. There's also a set of additional sort of common sense type questions that need to be asked when we're thinking about harm. Did the exposure to the proposed harm-causing agent actually happen before the harm was caused. Is there a dose-response gradient? There usually is, but some idiosyncratic responses aren't like this. Is there a challenge-rechallenge data? That is, if you do it again, does it happen again? If you do that three times and it happens three times, then that's pretty much certain that it did happen like that. And is the association consistent across the different studies? That is, consistent, not necessarily identical. Or is this just a one-off finding in a small study that might just be the play of chance? Finally, there is the question, does this association make biological sense? Now, bear in mind that biological sense we often rewrite when we see things and then we explain the biology backwards. The most classic example in paediatrics for that would be lying babies down on their backs to sleep to stop them getting sudden infant death syndrome. Now, obviously, the ideal way of making comparable groups is randomization. But if the events that you're looking for are rare or temporarily late from giving the drug, maybe many years down the line, then you're not going to run big enough RCTs or keep going them long enough to catch those effects. In those cases, you might need large cohorts or even case control studies instead. For really exceptional results, then collections of cases without formal controls may be sufficient to cause the harms caused. And classically, the thalidomide focamelia issue is one of these. The bottom line is that blaming things is always difficult, but the pointers for appraisal here might be of some use in unpicking the strength of evidence behind attributing blame in certain circumstances. So now we can move on to the two clinical questions, and one of them is directly about blame. 
This question comes from Christine Chu and Anu Goenka in Manchester, and they ask the question, does amoxicillin exposure increase the risk of rash in Epstein-Barr virus infection, EBV infection? The situation they come up with is a six-year-old who has significant tonsillitis and a swab comes back positive for a beta-hemolytic strep. She's been given some penicillin V, but she doesn't like the taste of that and is refusing to take it but has previously had amoxicillin, and her mum wants to know if she's allowed to have amoxicillin, because at least she could take that. The consultant in charge is really quite reluctant, worrying that amoxicillin will lead to a rash if the beta-hemolytic strep isn't actually the causative organism, instead it's just a commensal, and that the girl actually has glandular fever, EBV infection. So the group went away and looked up, what evidence there is for amoxicillin increasing the risk of rash in acute glandular fever. They searched through three different databases and came up with 31 hits that might have been relevant, and that went down to five that were actually included. Three of these studies came from 1967. They included 121 out of 184 people with glandular fever that were treated with antibiotics, another with 126 out of 150 treated with antibiotics, and a third with 27 out of 38 patients who with acute glandular fever treated with antibiotics. In these, they found a mixture of antibiotics had been given to the patients. A fair few of them had chunks where they'd been given ampicillin, 18 out of 19, 20 out of 29, and 13 out of 13 in the three different studies of patients that got ampicillin developed a rash. Also in these studies, it was found that about 1 in 7 patients who didn't get any antibiotics also developed a rash. So it's not that rash is always linked to the antibiotic, but it's certainly a greatly increased risk. If you calculate that out as a relative risk, it sits somewhere between 5 and 11 times more likely to develop a rash if you're given ampicillin than if you're just given nout by way of antibiotics. The other two studies are series from 2013, Again, we're seeing rates of rash coming through even in those patients that aren't given antibiotics, somewhere around 23% or so. And if you look at the relative risks for these, where amoxicillin is used, not ampicillin, the relative risk of rash is around about 1. Certainly no significant difference from that. These authors conclude that while you really don't need to treat tonsillitis with antibiotics in the vast majority of cases, if you think it's severe and you've run through the risks and benefits and there really is some value in giving it, but you still have a sneaking suspicion that it might be glandular fever, then you can relatively safely use amoxicillin and it won't increase the rash risk any greater than if you'd not given them any antibiotics at all. The fear that we have about ampicillin is a different sort of compound. And I have to say that it was in doing the editing for this Archimedes that I realised that the two things were actually different. Which really just goes to show that you sometimes don't know what you don't know until you know you don't know it. The second of the case reports is even more interesting and concerns something that I'd never even vaguely heard about. Mini glucagon. Yeah, well, Elspeth Ferguson, who works in Sheffield, came with a scenario about a five-year-old girl who has type 1 diabetes whose mum calls for advice. The girl really has got some rough gastroenteritis and she refuses to drink anything more than just water and her sugars are only just around about four. 
you've heard about the use of mini-glucagon elsewhere in the world and wondered if, rather than bringing the child and mother up to hospital, you could use mini-glucagon to treat this. Now, this sort of makes sense in the setting that glucagon's used in hypoglycemia and if you give it, it can pull the sugars back up again. And the mini-glucagon refers to much lower doses than you'd use to use in the setting of a patient with diabetes that was comatose through hypoglycemia. The search, which was done in Medline and Embase using fairly broad criteria, brought back 78 potential papers of which three were relevant, and then went through the reference list of those to get a further study. These four studies were all case series of children that had been treated using mini-glucagon. The first one from 1996 was of three children only, and this really kicked off the idea. This one used a dose of between 30 and 50 micrograms. The other three studies use a protocol that runs along the lines of 10 micrograms per year of age, up to a maximum of 150, and if you were under 2, you got 20. These included 25, 5 and 29 children. The effect of the mini-glucagon was that it raised your blood sugar, and it did it really quite successfully. In 95% of cases, the blood sugars went up to a level to which they were, no one was worried about, and in around 40%, a repeat of the dosing was required. But these case series all relied on the selection of the sorts of patients that were trusted to do this sort of thing with a mini-glucagon that filled in the questionnaires or the surveys or responded and gave the information over about how well it had worked. It's unclear in how many patients they went to a similar situation but didn't get treated with mini-glucagon for whatever reason or how many patients later on developed problems secondary to it. But it doesn't really feel like there's a huge disadvantage to this situation but there are very small numbers in the published literature. And whilst it's a relatively established process in some areas of the world, Australia, for example, uses a lot of this, it's not established in the UK. This is a situation where the author concludes that the evidence is not strong enough to change practice and that mini-glucagon shouldn't be used. However... The evidence for stopping using it, if you're in a part of the world that does use mini-glucagon, isn't really strong enough to say that you shouldn't be using it either. This is one of those tricky situations where the evidence says one thing, and depending on where you start from sitting, depends on how you view it, I think. Evidence-based medicine, like the rest of life, can be murky at times, and I think this is a great example of it. Well, we hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. We would be delighted to hear any feedback that you have. Uh, tweet us on at ADC underscore BMJ. Email us at info at bmjgroup.com or send a pigeon. If you send it to London, England, the archives, then I'm sure we'll get hold of it. Until next month, we hope you have a lovely time and do evidence-based medicine to the best of your ability. 